Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and welcome back. If you had a chance to listen to part one of my conversation with Gary Novello Jr., I am sure you learned a lot. He really has an interesting perspective that I hadn't learned and heard from before, and that's why I wanted him on the show. He spent about 18 years in in-person loss prevention for brands like Home Depot, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Bloomingdale's. And then he's transitioned into a role as Director of Fraud Strategy and Analytics for Macy's. And really, from his perspective of in-person loss prevention, there's a lot of things that we can learn on the digital loss prevention side. And especially for retailers who have a physical in-store presence and those whose companies started in-store and then added on an e-commerce and or mobile strategy, he really shares just how important it can be to really cross-pollinate the information from in-store to online. Not just because there's buy online pickup in store or buy online return in store, but also just looking at the data. You can both sides have different ways of approaching the problems. And so you put that together and you can solve more problems. So I hope that you really enjoyed part one. I know if that you will enjoy part two of our conversation. We talked more about working with cross-functional teams to get data and buy-in that's needed and just how important that can be to bridge those gaps and really take a minute to explain to other teams and departments and executives why it matters so much. I think that is part of it is that he's been able to play the new guy card a little bit within different departments, but really being able to break down silos with other departments such as finance and data and supply chain, a lot of different areas. So uh, while we can't exactly say all of the big successes and metrics that he's had in the last year, it's pretty impressive. And he's changing the team a little bit where I just think that there's a lot that other people can learn. We're also going to talk today about why he thinks traditional retailers are more willing to adapt noticeable processes in-store for loss prevention, but often against adding any kind of friction to online customers for the same purpose. So admittedly, this was my question and something I've been wondering for quite a while. Why traditional retailers are okay and actually find it necessary to put things in place to protect their merchandise as they should, such as security tags, armed security guard, or just uniform security guard, metal detectors, security cameras, but, and, and in that case, there really is no financial impact to any consumers either because the loss is to the store. But then why on the online side, where there is a loss and an impact to consumers because there's often a stolen payment method being used, why he thinks that executives or just people in charge of e-commerce are against 
any kind of friction. Sometimes it's even as simple as adding CVV requirements in the checkout, right? The last three digits on the back of the card or the four digits on the front of the card for Amex. Just little things. I'm not talking about, you know, stopping every order or calling everyone or anything like that, but maybe it's a one-time password. Maybe it's, I just, I speak to so many merchants who have so much trouble just getting some of the basics in and it feels like a contradiction to me, but I really was interested in his perspective since he's been on both sides. And I think you will be too. And he also shares some crazy fraud stories. Honestly, I think we could do a whole other episode on just some of the things that have happened to Gary, especially when he was in the in-person side in store. One of them could honestly inspire a documentary. So that should be interesting and fun. And then he also shares advice for people that may be considering starting a new career or shifting their focus in their career midway. I think these days with the great reshuffle, as they're calling it, there are more people than ever that are looking at maybe entering a different industry. And he has some really good tips for that. So with that, I am going to let you listen in on my conversation with Gary Novello Jr., I hope you enjoy part two and I'll talk to you soon. So shifting gears a little bit, are there specific changes you made to the online fraud strategy or process that was a result from your previous experience in person? Yeah, I think we talked a little bit about that. It had a lot to do with the data and the transparency of the data. Yeah. One of the first things coming into my role was just making sure that we had as much data as we could to really identify some of the vulnerabilities and the opportunities that might bring us more dollars back to the bottom line, but also sharing that. I think it was super important, obviously, and paramount for the investigation folks and the asset protection leadership to understand all that data, specifically around chargebacks and some of the things that were happening by store or by category, because every single area could tell you something from a pattern or a group that might be out there. It could be an external group that we can have our external team work on. Mm -hmm. It could be an internal collusion situation that is a a bad associate potentially in a store that we have to investigate appropriately. It could be a training issue that's happening in the store. But the, the bottom line is if we get the data to these talented people that work in the investigation teams and the field teams, they can do a lot with it. They've already proven that to us. So getting that data to those people was one of the first steps and ultimately been successful for us. And then also, I think I mentioned before, how we how do we transition that data to the business side of the mm. field? So how do we get the store management folks and the senior leaders to understand how fraud impacts us, mm. um, how what they do in the store impacts fraud? And that could be as simple as how they handle a transaction in a particular type of way, how they call out red flag behaviors by folks that are coming into the store with some bad behaviors that are externally driven. Could be internal collusion tips that people are giving us based on behaviors of people seeing certain things that happen in stores that they get to the asset protection department. Hmm. That is a subsequent route to us, right? So once it gets to asset protection, once it gets to some kind of leadership, they share that information with the fraud team. Now we can build out better programs and strategies. We can build systemic fixes for problems that are vulnerabilities we're seeing. We can build out investigations with the teams in the field to help them bring these to fruition, whether it's internally, externally, or maybe a new training module or memo that gets sent out to the stores. 
But those don't happen without data. Those don't happen without sharing things the right way. I'm not saying they have to share every waking detail. But what you can do is just put it in the right kind of data set and Mm -hmm. share it in the way that they're going to digest it and understand it. Coming from the field, I speak field. I speak fraud now. So I am bilingual in, (laughs) in that world. And that allows me to create an environment that helps it go back and forth Mm. with conversation. And I think that has been a a true success on trend analysis, on investigations coming to closure, them giving me feedback on what works for them. And I get it because I came from there. So I'm like, yeah, exactly what what you're looking for. And I can now take the data and make it look that way for them. And Mm put it into a place that's going to help them do it. Different you have to do terms, it different, yeah. yeah, different KPIs, right? They're, they're being measured on, on different things in the fraud team. So kind of translating that into something, not only that makes sense to them, but that matters to them is probably really important. We have a symbiotic relationship when it comes to the, the field and the fraud departments. Mm. We can only go so far as a fraud team. We could do systemic fixes. We can use technology. We can do all the great things. And by all means, in certain companies, it might work out very well. In certain other companies, you might just be like bleeding out from the fraud side of the, the loss. But if you work together with business leaders and you work together with investigation teams and you guys are able to work in harmony... I mean, you have untapped potential to really do great things with fraud and the Mm -hmm. business. And I think that I'm in a position now where I see it. I I could see it. I could see it, you know, down the pipeline. And I know what we can do, what we're capable of. We've already had great signs of it in my first year here. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to where it's going to go. And the talent I have on this side, on the fraud side, is unmatched as far as what they're capable of and their knowledge and just understanding fraud. And Mm -hmm. then... I came from the investigation side, so I'm, I know what they're capable of. I'm just, I just, I see it coming together. When it does, magic happens. A hundred percent. It's like seeing the forest through the trees, right? Having that clear 10,000 foot view of how these things work together, because in majority of retail first companies, right? Companies that start in store and move online, they're completely separate. And that's, Fine, but I would imagine, and this is something I'm curious about, I would imagine that bad actors, fraudsters, thieves, whatever you want to call them, I'm sure there are some that are more comfortable in store and some that are more comfortable online. But have you started to see the cross-pollination between the channels, but with bad actors? Are there things 100%. where... Yeah, we see yeah. it. We see folks in three different categories. We see the folks that are only online and they they spend their days doing it. They're very good at it. They know how to work the system to a level of gaming where it's it's not illegal. They're just kind of taking advantage of resellers and things of that nature. And then they have those folks in that same category that are doing illegal activity and we find them. Mm -hmm. We mitigate them at least at minimal. And then you have the bad actors on the field side that convolute into like a total, they could be involved with thefts, they could be involved with fraud, they could be involved with everything, mm-hmm. whatever they get their hands on. But in that same category, you have very sophisticated groups in the field that are organized and, mm-hmm. and very, very well sophisticated in the operation, the process, what they can and can't do, even as simple as they understand the legal laws of what you can do to potentially apprehend them or arrest uh, them. So they right. stay right under the radar of that. Mm-hmm. With it could be denomination of how much they're stealing to not having certain processes on how they steal in place 
so mm. that you can hold that to them legally. Some of them are very, very sophisticated and, and mm-hmm. understand that very well, which makes them very difficult. Yeah. But what you do find uh, happens is there is a blend. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there are folks that do act in both of those channels and those verticals and are able to manufacture online anytime based on what they're doing. It makes sense. And you'll find them correlated sometimes to in-store related stuff. It does mm-hmm. happen from time to time. What I would tell you is pattern-wise, you'll probably find them to be more separate than together because hmm. most of these groups are the creatures of habit, right? Yes. So yes. That's if, kind of, yeah. That's they, what I've always assumed, but yeah. If it's working, right. Mm-hmm. If they're, if they're doing changes. some kind of scam in a store, they're not going to start playing around online stuff and, and start. Now the very big groups will, because yes. they just, they have multiple kind of operations going on. Right. Multiple um, streams of revenue for their business. Right. Exactly. Their organized seen, retail crime business. Yeah. I've seen more in my last year of these bigger groups mm. than I've ever seen on the field side, just because I have access to all this information yes. now. And I do see things correlate and I do see um, bigger operations happening. And I'm like, wow, this really is like a big business for people. Mm-hmm. Um, they do this all day, every day um, in a very organized way where it's, it's literally a business. It's not some dude sitting in, in a basement with a hoodie on, like hacking into systems, right? That you right. see on like a movie, right? These are people that are organized. They have like a house. They have people over their house. They talk about, they probably have whiteboards everywhere and boxes and, and doing all the things. Some illegal and some gaming wise from a abuse perspective, but either way, they're, they're doing it out there and uh, you'll find them correlated at times. But I think a lot of times the scammers stay with the instant. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you, benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Or scamming. With what they know, right. What they know, However, what they I do. do know that when COVID first hit, your 
predecessor in, in a similar role anyway. Uh, and shout out to Eric Rainsworth because he was on a previous episode of the podcast mm-hmm, as well right. in the first season. And while you guys both have different perspectives and different strategies and just ways of approaching the job, which is, and both are great. But I know he definitely said that they saw some people moving online when all the stores closed down. And I know I've heard that from other retailers too. Now, sometimes they're easier to spot, but these were the ones that would do more refund fraud and and that kind of thing. They wouldn't, trying to get their hands on a stolen credit card could be very overwhelming or just intimidating, but maybe doing these scammy things where they're making claims that, oh, the box didn't come or they're just different sketchy things that may not be considered a crime, but definitely cost the company money. So there's the migration definitely happens during COVID. Mm-hmm. It migrated online because that was the only option they had. I yeah. mean, the stores weren't open, right? right? So people that were relying on store lost to profit from yeah. with their scams, it couldn't do it. So they had to figure it out. But I think to Eric's point, by the way, I worked very closely with Eric when I was on the Bloomingdale side. And yeah. he was he was one of my partners in this whole journey for me to hmm. get into fraud. So we used to talk all the time, several mm-hmm. times a week on, on some of these things. But what's important to note is they were not very good at it, right? As Eric probably mentioned. So they were easy to spot yeah. because they were just amateurs. Just, yeah. They weren't very sophisticated. They were just doing things. So I think when the stores opened back up, they went back um, to what they needed. They went back to, to kind of, yeah. And don't forget that there is a, a level of diplomacy that happens with within certain local environments on the change in laws mm. that happen and bail bond reform and things like that, where now they're incentivized to go to stores because at the end of the day, they're going to be released right there on the spot. Even if they're caught, mm. there's no white collar crime that they're going to book them and bring them downtown. Because of COVID be, and right, yeah. So, right. so now, so now they're going to be going to stores to try and do things because they're like, well, it's, you know, you need a slap on the wrist. I mean, they had people that would be multiple times a day being called into the police department for after being released. There's no difference there than fraud. If their fraud mm-hmm. is their tactic, their methodology, then they're incentivized to do that just as much in the store. Well, why, why do it online? And you could do it in the store and you could just keep rinse and repeating your operation over and over throughout the days and weeks. I want to skip one question and go to this big meaty question, uh, as you called it, uh, when we talked about it, because I think it flows directly with what we were just talking about. I've really definitely noticed over the last few years, because I've been asked to speak at more events outside of online and more with traditional retailers, you know, like NRF and and a few other organizations and things like that, because a lot of companies in retail are caring about online. but. I've started to make this comparison between the normalization of in-store loss prevention tactics. I mean, you just mentioned, right? Like with in-store loss prevention, there's a lot more of an aspect with law enforcement and a lot more of an aspect of prosecutions and people going to jail like that for online. We're really just trying to play whack-a-mole often. Right. And not that I'm saying we should, but just stopping, stopping the attempts, but you could stop every single attempt and then obviously still have a lot of issues. And so I guess what I'm getting at is like in store, there's also a lot more beyond the prosecution and and jail time and jail, all those things that come with it. There's also kind of more things that are out in the open. It feels like it's just more accepted by consumers and also by companies to have 
maybe depending on the store, a official security guard. I know oftentimes there's also plainclothes LP walking around, but a uniform security guard, security tags, metal detectors, videos, you know, you're prosecuting the shoplifters, like all of that versus in the e-commerce channel, like you said, sometimes you're kind of put in the closet and oftentimes e-commerce in general wants to keep fraud behind the scenes. They don't even, a lot of companies don't even like to call their department the fraud department because they don't want to mm-hmm. admit that they have fraud. It's like this dirty little secret. Little do they know so what we all know in this industry is that we all have fraud. Like every brand you can think of has fraud. And there are a ton of brands on our retailer call that maybe the everyday person would just not think that they had a team or anything. So anyway, this is something that a lot of fraud fighters have an issue with, right? Like, oh, we can't have friction. Oh, we can't tell people that we have fraud. We don't want to put it out in a press release that we arrested someone, all these other things. It's possible that I'm thinking with like this, the grass is always greener in my eyes and that it isn't really the case, but it really does feel like that's more out in the open. That's more accepted. That's more normalized to prevent shoplifting, but preventing online shoplifting isn't because it's a different form. So I would love to get your opinion on this since you've been on both sides of retail theft prevention. Do you think that loss prevention efforts in store you know, especially the ones that aren't invisible to most customers that they can see is more accepted in person than online? It's a yeah, big question. And I think it's, it's going to be a big answer, but I, I think, think it's a great question. We I think I yeah. really struggle. A lot of us struggle with just how much we have to be like, oh, we can't within an organization where they don't want to do anything about fraud. They don't want to hire investigators and work with law enforcement and all of those pieces. So maybe there's something that online fraud fighters can pull from this and say, hey, why do we care so much about in-store? Or just that making that comparison, I think, is important. But yeah, I I think you're 100 right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think fortunately, we're we're a great example of of getting fraud involved in some Mm. more tactical plays. Right. I mean, I wouldn't be in my position right now because we fall under an asset protection umbrella now. Mm. So me getting brought into this position was was really tactical and knowing that it was going to be kind of a, a splash in a different type of methodology and how we're going to approach fraud and how we're going to deal with it, knowing that I'm going to be transparent, I'm going to get involved with the field. I'm going, I mean, that was a very pointed approach from our VP when, mm. you know, he gave me the opportunity to do this. So I think in addition to that, prior to, to that role, we found it very productive to put a fraud investigator in, in a very particular store, someone that focused on just fraud, that was in-store fraud stuff. I mean, that has been ultimately a successful role that we have put in some of like the bigger vulnerable stores yeah. that have like a ton of fraud and deal with a lot of external elements and things like that. So it's no different than how you would approach it if you were in asset protection if you had a store that was really bogged down with a whole bunch of external problems, like they would probably beef up some of their undercover detectives and security guards at the door, right? If you had a lot of internal problems, you probably would have an investigator focus there type of thing. So fraud can be within that conversation. It's just, it's a matter of the incentivized approach. And it mm-hmm. goes back to my previous comment on how well did you deliver the business need for fraud? How well does senior leadership understand the impact of the bottom line? Would, would a store manager or a senior manager in the field understand the correlation of impacts from what kind of fraud happened in their store versus how it impacted the bottom line? 
Hmm. The, the X amount of dollars that happen by store, by district, by region, by company. by chargeback, by yeah, you know, by whatever chargeback, it is, by, by whatever gift card losses, by yeah. The anecdotal doesn't matter as much as the deliverable of that data, right? Mm-hmm. So, what's important is how much impact did the store play into the bottom line based on the vulnerability, hmm. and if you can deliver that in in a way that they can digest it. Then there will be a, a, a need. There will be a buying going. Hey, I don't want. I don't want that to happen. What can we do to help? You can help by doing X, Y, Z. And now you're now you have a seat at the table. Now you're talking about fraud. Now it's out there more. I think what happens is we build strategies. Well, previously maybe or in other companies, we build strategies to mitigate. And like you said, you play whack-a-mole, right? You build a strategy this year. Maybe it works great for a year or two. A different methodology comes out. You build another strategy, or you get a technology and. Yeah. And now you're behind the scenes operating, but it never gets to the the field. It never gets to the people that that can play a role and impact in that. And I would back that up by saying, when they're incentivized, most people work off of a measures measure driven report card, right? Mm. Whether that's their um, goals, whether that's a scorecard of some sort, the percentage um, that they operate their, in, percent, whatever it is, their increase every year. Yeah. If you're not, yeah, if you're not on that radar. Mm-hmm. they're certainly not going to have an incentivized approach to monitoring that or talking about it or, or delivering on that. Right. Now, the first step is to get them interested, right. And say, Hey, you can impact mm-hmm. X amount of dollars if we just did X, or if I can get you to just talk about X as a support, I think that we can make a great business impact. And most people want to be on the right side of that mm-hmm. kind of problem, right. They want to be like, Hey, I help the cause. So that's the first step in that. The second step is- And that's why you brought chargeback data to your your in-store AP teams is that they're able to see that data and that impact, like the other shoe, so to speak, right? So they're not just comparing shrink to inventory. They're they're looking at, oh, our store got more chargebacks or, oh, we were impacted this way or we have more buy online pickup and store fraud or gift cards or- whatever that is. And then they're then, then you work it into their metrics and they care about it and they notice it. And half the battle is just informing them that this is happening. You know, they're they don't just, know what they don't know. Yeah. It's just that simple. Yeah. You yeah. Know, um, if I told yeah. you your store, your specific store that you own has a fraud dollar associated with that store and a fraud rate associated with that store. Mm-hmm. And it's under these categories and these categories out of the five of them, there's two of them that you play a major part on impact in. Hmm. So you can effectively decrease the loss you have here in these particular categories by just doing X, Y, Z. Yeah. I don't know about you, but if I'm a store manager, I'm, I'm in. Like, so yeah. Yeah, I don't want that to happen. Totally. I don't want to be... I don't want to be on the bad list. I don't want to be a person that is. Well, not only are you on the bad list internally, but I was just going to say that, that that's the, that's the location that's being talked about on discord and telegram and Reddit is like, Oh, don't go to this location, go to that location. Cause they're not paying attention to their fragrances or their cosmetics or their purses or whatever that is. Right. I, I've worked with a few large chains that have in-store operations and just doing a simple analysis of you know, chargebacks per store, even though a lot of stores are covered, they're fraud chargebacks. They don't have the same liability because it's in person, et cetera. However, these days there's so much more commerce happening online and then pick up in person that that changes the game a little bit, but just, just having that conversation and saying, Hey, I don't know what's going on at this location. 
but they're having an uptick in this type of thing. And I've been able to say, you might want to dig in deeper to see if there's one particular person that was on shift when these orders happened or whatever the, the trends are. And so to your point, bringing that kind of data analysis to the stores and just saying, Hey, you probably didn't know this because we're seeing this from a totally different perspective. There's another avenue of loss to your store that you just weren't aware of. And here you go. And then they, over time, they're going to start noticing those things and going, oh, okay. Sometimes it's because a sales associate gets commission on items and they're upselling too much. And so that particular store is getting higher chargebacks for not as described or something like that, right? That just bringing that knowledge to them is very important and powerful. Yeah, I think if you can be a good translator on bringing that yes. information to them and you can give them a roadmap on how to fix it or how to make it better, I, I, I'm in the field of dreams kind of mentality. You know, if, <laughs> if you, you lay it out for them and you give it to them, I found great success in them following that lead, especially if you can circle back on it. And if you can say, hey, I see what you did there. Great job. I see you retrain the people. Your numbers look great. I mean, what a difference from this year, last year or month by month or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that that puts a pep in anyone's step and you can effectively influence people without even having it on a report. You just talk about it and be transparent about it. Mm-hmm. I found that to be a, a very good avenue to, to lean on. I couldn't agree more. So on this aspect, though, of you were mentioning earlier, like on the first part about how. One of the differences between in-store loss prevention and online is that there's way more of a customer impact on online because there's somebody whose card is being stolen or account is being accessed or all of those pieces. They're using a payment method of another person rather than boosting items out of a store. Like if we're just looking at traditional in-store loss prevention, not all the the fancy bells and whistles, Mm. but even though there's not an impact to customers, it's acceptable and normalized by customers and by brands to have externally facing loss prevention controls in place, Mm -hmm. even though it doesn't really impact the customer. It does make them feel safe often, especially with some of these more violent boostings that that have been happening, you know, smash and grabs over the last year here in the U.S. especially. But it's not like, oh, okay, it helps our, they're protecting me. They're protecting my money. Now, there is an impact of well, the fewer things that are thefted, the the price isn't going to go up as much or vice versa. But my curiosity is why then when online has more implication to the customer, more implication to the brand, often more costs associated, it's more expensive to a company to lose a fraud charge back and have that missed fraud and you know have the shipping costs and all that other stuff out the door versus someone just picking up a pair of jeans and walking out the store. Why? And I know I'm kind of asking you to speak on behalf of an entire industry, mm-hmm. so I don't mean to do that, but I'm just curious why you think from your perspective that so many other organizations within an e-commerce structure, right? Whether it's operations or marketing or sales or, you know, supply chain, et cetera, that don't want the fraud team to make any noise or impact. They don't want to have there be an extra step with whether any kind of friction, right? And I know a lot of it goes down to conversion and slowing down the process, but I mean, it just seems to me there's more customer impact. There's more revenue impact 
why can't we say, yeah, we have a fraud department and yeah, we do these kinds of checks. And yeah, sometimes we have to call you and have you take it or ask you to take a selfie and send it in or whatever the, that piece that might be seen as friction. Mm-hmm. Is that making sense? Like, why? yeah, no, I, yeah. I had okay. a lot of my first year in, I've had a lot of questions yeah. again around process and effective processes and efficiencies and and the whys. And yeah, I got a lot of conversion conversations that went on. And again, part of my own personal journey is, is I'm very collaborative. So yeah. I, I, I'm on the phone with customer experience people once or twice a week on the regular. And it has to do with situational things. It has to do with strategy things. I'm on the phone with the POS people, understanding like what they're working mm. on, what the adaptation is, the payment people, and what they're working on in the upcoming kind of initiatives. And all for this very specific conversation. There's even talks that like I should go through seasonalities about loosening certain strategies and making mm-hmm. them tighter. And I'm like, well, wait, 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 yeah. like time out, right? <laughs> if there are certain times of year when fraud is just as bad as it is any time of year. Why are we like, loosening up? Our- that's not the time to do it, right? So, but now th- there are reasons. On they the do other it. side, right? you, you want you those to- customers to get their items faster. You want right. so much competition online, like, Yes, all the I think it, I think it's subjective. If I'm mm-hmm. going to be honest, I think what you have to you can't look at it as an overarching kind of process or determination on how you're going to strategize. I think you have to look at it on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. And I could give you like an example. So if we're working on a strategy for POS and it comes down to we're going to refer somebody right on this particular particular parameters, right? The question comes in like, well, it, can it you might define impact. what refer someone is? I mean, I think. Oh I yeah, like if you I refer someone, retail, but <laughs> yeah. So a card goes through; it doesn't just go through; it gets referred to a call center. Meaning you have mm. to explain who you are and validate that, right? Right. And Especially it can, that can if be it's done your through a store card, right? And there's a bunch of different ways they do that, mm-hmm. so I won't get into the nitty gritties right. of yep. it. But basically, it's not going to be as easy as a process for us to just. I put my card in, I get my stuff, I go, right? Right, I have to get on the phone with someone, do a one-time password, whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the questions come in, do you refer to somebody and and why? And I think the response to that really is, if it's a nominal amount of people that are being impacted from the referral, right? Mm -hmm. Good customers meeting. Mm -hmm. Would they understand based on the amount that they're spending, based on their geographical location, based on all these different things, Mm -hmm. would it be reasonable for a good customer to understand that? I mean, if I had to get on the phone with someone because Mm -hmm. I'm spending a couple thousand dollars and I'm out of state and whatever the reasons are, and they say, hey, Mr. Novello, I I have to just refer you to to just get on the phone with the agent. The agent gets on the phone and says, hey, uh, tell me where you live to tell me have you driven this car. I'm going to send you a password on your phone, whatever. It might take all of two minutes, right? Mm. It really do. For me personally, I feel like, you know what? They're protecting my identity. Mm. They're not mm-hmm. allowing someone to use my I card. Agree. But I'm also from this industry. <laughs> yes. you know, So yes. the typical shopper right. out there might not get that. Mm. They might say, hey, this is an inconvenience. What, what in the mm. world's going on? Why do I have, mm-hmm. to, I have to call somebody? I might go to their competitor. Yeah. Right. What, are you saying I'm a thief? Like mm-hmm. these are the kind of thought processes that go on that we have to, we have to find the common ground there mm. and do damage control on customer impact with those standards. Now, what I would tell you is if it's a strategy we're putting in place, it's going to be very similar to what I said, uh, spending a large amount of money on out of state. I'll, I'll green light that anytime mm. because at the end of the day, if there is a complaint that comes through, I'm sure any reasonable customer service experience person or even a fraud person can explain, man, this, sir, this is for your own benefit where this is really here to help you. 
John, yes. I'm sorry for the inconvenience, but um, at the end of the day, we're here to protect you. And then that's why we did it. That improves the customer experience. Yeah. And I think it's that that's really where the deliverable comes in, mm-hmm. right? So we could talk about what it looks like upfront on the forward facing the side of the transaction. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But on the back side, if we can't deliver that in kind of the way I just said it, mm-hmm. then the, the customer's going to have a bad taste in their mouth. And then you're going to yeah. get a complaint that's going to escalate. Especially if they're interrogated, right? Yeah. Right. Why you know, are so, you making this purchase? Why are you out of state? What are you? Yep. There's no easy answer because it, it requires multiple disciplines to nail it. So mm-hmm. You have to have good response to any type of complaint that comes through. You have to have good customer service on the front lines, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm if I'm an agent or I mean not agent, sorry, an associate in the store, and I have a bad attitude for whatever reason mm-hmm. that day, and now you're being referred on top of it. Mm-hmm. Now, now I'm going to be upset, right? And now I'm going to be like, all right, so not only are you referring, you're going to be irritated, like, especially it's my fault. I'm trying to spend my right. money, right? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And that's that's where you run into a problem. Now, here, here's the kicker. You can have one escalation out of thousands on thousands mm-hmm. of transactions that everybody wants to shift the entire program. Process you know, and, because and of everyone that wants one, to change it all, right? Yes. Oh my goodness. And, yes. And, and that's where I think the voice of reasons come in. I think that that's where if you have a good collaboration and especially a good if you yeah, a good reputation and credibility and data to back it up and say, hey, we've that's actually right. done this process 27,000 times in the last um, month. That's when you can hold on. Fine. You know, right. And right. This one I have a good relationship deal is going up service. the chain. They, they'll call should. they'll call us. You know, mm-hmm. they'll say, hey, Gary, I have a guy in the American team. He's great with them. He talks to them mm-hmm. almost several times a week. And they'll call and say, hey, is this how this is supposed to happen? Mm-hmm. You know, and he'll turn around and say, yes, that worked as it was intended. Here's why. Let me explain the parameters mm-hmm. to you. So now the customer service people have a good amount of information so they can yeah. reply to the complaints effectively, where it's not just a, a kind of cut and paste kind of response to them. They can mm-hmm. explain in detail why mm-hmm. this happens. And I think that relationship is paramount to the success of any of these mitigation efforts that, that we want to yeah. continue to push along down the chain of communication uh, to the customers, communication internally. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think I would imagine that your experience of like, so why in store, if somebody tries to steal something, I can apprehend them and I can make a scene. I mean, I don't want to make a scene. I try not to, but like, <laughs> I can do all these things, yeah. but yet online, we can't even prosecute someone. I mean, that is a much longer conversation, but I was telling you the other day that I plan on having one of one of two of them, if not both on the podcast soon, that there was a VP of trust and safety for a very large online marketplace several years ago that was getting hit with fraud left and right because of their business model. It was easy to do. Mm -hmm. And they hired someone that was a former U.S. Secret Service um, agent who they had worked with on that side to build out an investigations team and there are a lot of companies that will say, well, online investigations doesn't really provide any bottom line because even if there is restitution down the line, we're never going to get that money back. But I would argue, yeah, but when you do that in tandem with a press release and it gets out in the media and then that gets shared within various forums, people quickly are like, well, I'm not going to mess with them because the majority of online businesses aren't prosecuting now. So I'm just not going to go there. And it was extremely significant on preventative and also just getting a lot of that junk out of there. Because even if you stop a hundred percent of fraud orders, and obviously that's going to mean you're going to break some eggs on the other side and and false Mm -hmm. declines, which is not good. But even if you were to 
stop every single attempt. It's still going to cost your company money in authorization fees, in reviewers, oh. in your fraud system, paying for that, et cetera. So why not just fully prevent them from even attempting? And that yeah. is something, and I know there are a lot of people that say, well, law enforcement won't take our cases. Honestly, this one guy who's former secret service, his process for working with law enforcement is so similar to your process with working internally. He goes to their regional meetings. He goes, there's the ECTF, the electronic crimes task force in each major region. And that's with the FBI, the secret service, often Homeland security, local police departments, and then any businesses within. And he goes to every single, especially pre-COVID, every single one of them builds relationships and says, Hey, I think I have a case in your region. And then let me explain it to you. Cause not everybody in which law enforcement agency do you think would be best for this? Blah, blah, blah. Right. And then handed it over on a silver platter with a bow on it. And they've had so much success. He's now done this for two other companies and it's been incredible, but it's very rare. And so that's something yeah, it is hard to do on the online side. And I understand it. I totally get it. And I know that sometimes I get frustrated with like the, even just the sticker in the dressing room when I go shopping in person mm-hmm. and it says we prosecute all thefts, like that's never going to be on anyone's website that yeah. we're going to prosecute anyone using a stolen credit card or accessing someone's account that isn't theirs. It's just not going to happen because they don't want to talk about it. So anyway, and that's but I think getting way. into those um, yeah. external channels, mm-hmm. though, can be just as effective. Right. It spreads like wildfire. Right. Yes. And I think cause I mean, we're fortunate here. I have an amazing investigation team, our organized retail crime. Team yeah. I told you about. So on on the investigation unit, I mean, that's what they do. And these mm-hmm. guys are amazing. They can mm-hmm. put together these big comprehensive, massive cases that have several agencies across multiple Bits states. and pieces and, at different and, yeah, stores. And it takes time and, and yeah. dedication. And let me tell you, they produce results year over year with mm-hmm. this. And they do it in a very similar fashion where they wrap it up in a bow yep. and they make it almost impossible to not prosecute yes. based on just the sheer amount of information. Right? Yes. And the best news about all of that might be, yeah, you might get restitution down the road. Maybe there'll be some drawback, right? But you stop these people in their tracks, number mm-hmm. one. At minimal, you slow them down for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And then it spreads like wildfire yes. through the bad actors industry, right? Where now they're like, hey, don't mess with me. So, like these guys don't play, man. These mm-hmm. guys will take you down. It's not worth it to them. I mean, they're in for the who's going to be easy. How am I going to kind of get out of this without mm-hmm. any kind of whether it's a uh, prosecution or restitution or just a I headache really consequences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, it's just, it's so easy to move to something easier. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be a retail establishment that puts the stake in the ground there and says, Hey, look, we're, we're going to come after you, you know, we're going to find you. We're going to, we're going to make it difficult for you. I, chances are that they're going to try and move to different areas that are going to be more lucrative with less yeah. headaches. Gil Rosenthal and I were talking about a few episodes ago about just sometimes the biggest motivator or the biggest goal that we have in building fraud strategy, especially is what can we put in place that's going to cost too much time and or too much money to steal from us? What can we do without, obviously there's that balance of customer friction, but creating fraud processes and and identifiers and, and just looking at all those things where 
it's just not worth it. And I often right. say it's not the, I mean, I hate, I, I would like to find a better analogy, but you're not trying to outrun the bear, right? You're right. outrunning everyone else, running the bear. That's why collaboration is important because if you're not collaborating, you're the one getting eaten by the bear usually. But clearly I'm a little annoyed with us with a company or two that has really not wanted to collaborate because I think I've mentioned that twice now. I think that I've, I've seen it on the retailer side, not not so much on the calls that I have, but other communication groups that you guys have where sometimes there's an address that's shared, right? Or, yep. or hey, we're prosecuting these people. Do you have anything for it? And then start to build a case to where you've got $50,000. And online, it's attempts. It's not, it's not even what they got away with. So even if one person attempted the same order a ton of times and never got through, you can still prosecute on that with that amount. And the higher the dollar amount, the more attention it gets sure. from DAs and USDAs and all that. So that's it's funny. You mentioned that breaking the barriers between retailers, I think is important because mm-hmm. we have the same enemy, right? Yes. I mean, oh my gosh, asset, asset protection, asset protection fraud, we're, we're dealing with the same enemies. Now, you want to talk about sales and marketing on that side? Yeah, there's a strategic advantage for them to not play nice in the sandbox because it's going to impact their business. But for us, it's a complete inverse. Like We should collaborate completely on these groups all the time. Do do in-person AP and LP teams, do they collaborate like we do on the fraud side? Like with their competitors? They They have groups. I'm actually associated with the Metro Orca Group, which I'm in the Northeast kind of area. We have meetings, we have several things that go on collaboration Hmm. kind of things. And that's, that's been since the dawn of time. And they have investigation committees and groups that collaborate to on different tactics and different things that do it. So they have NRF, as you know, has a big collaboration with those players in there as well. And sometimes they have workshops and things like that you could do as a group to really kind of collaborate. So very similar when it comes to what we do in fraud, Mm -hmm. just again, keeping that mentality of how often are you collaborating though? How often are you bringing information to the table that can help one another? Mm-hmm. I think it's fortunate on your call. You have call, to give a penny. I constantly get something. <laughs> every, every time your call happens, like, yeah, I have a takeaway. I'm like, all right, great. I know yep. kind of what's going on out there. That That's good to bring back here and yeah. talk to the internal group with. Oh, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I do think it's important. It's a give a penny, take a penny, right? We don't just mm-hmm. want, there are some people who, legitimately because of their organization and their company can't share things, but you still can share generalizations and you can share some things so that you can just taking. But I mean, I think that, yeah, there's just so much to learn from each other. And I am so on point with you, the bad guys work together. So we have to, and additionally, your competitors in brand are not your competitors when you're in fraud because you guys are your actual, your common enemy is mm-hmm. the fraudster. It, yeah. I just, I just got to write the forward of a really amazing fraud book that's coming out soon. That's like, I don't think I've mentioned that on nice. the podcast yet, but I'm going to have the author soon. I actually was asked to write it and just didn't have the bandwidth, but I was fortunate to refer some incredible people that wrote a really good book over the last two years. Uh, and I wrote the forward for it. And that was basically what, thank you. That's what it was weird. because I was like, I had to Google, how do you write forward to a book? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing over here. I'm just figuring it out. Oh, thank you. Well, I, it was exactly what I was saying it was like, it's a common enemy. And that's just the verbiage. I was like, Oh, that reminds me of the forward I just wrote mm-hmm. last week. Uh, it's coming out. The book's coming out in April. So something to look forward to. 
Yeah. Right. It's all about data analytics and fraud. It's actually like, it's, Love it. I know I'm, I nerded out. I gotta, I gotta read the book early, but <laughs> <laughs> at least skim through it. I'm looking forward to being able to highlight it was all online, but yeah. So anyway, like that was a right turn and I apologize, but it was just like, oh yeah, that's what it, I know. I said this before recently, but the common enemy is not your brand. And I think that the retailer calls that we have biweekly is a very good example of that because we have a lot of direct competitors working together. We started out just talking about refund fraud. Now we talk about everything and it's been a real benefit to me to keep an ear to the ground, but also to you guys. And also there's like that camaraderie, right? Because you, we can have a shorthand. A lot of us are more senior in the, in the space and just kind of have a shorthand. Yeah, I think it's great. Worked really good for me. My first year in fraud. I mean, I couldn't mean, ask for a better situation. We were happy to have you join and mm-hmm. you're one of your team members also joined sometimes too. And we love having him too. Okay. So back to a few more questions and then we'll wrap up. What's one thing that has surprised you most about fraud prevention online? So fraud prevention online, I'd probably say that the sophistication of some of the groups mm-hmm. out there was a lot more than I anticipated. As far as like online, I knew there's sophistication out there in store where they did some organized things, but online it's big. It operates into these enterprises almost <laughs> that really spend all day, every day and the, how big their networks yeah. are. I mean, it oh just yeah. spider webs into like all these kind of big groups out there. So that, I mean, that was pretty surprising mm. at first. And then the velocity of fraud, like how much happens so quickly mm. and how damaging it can be if you, again, you don't stay ahead of it and quickly react to these things. So I think that that plays a, a integral part in how you build your routines out and what you look at and how you communicate effectively. We don't know who these people necessarily are. And that becomes like this enigma at first, like you have this mm. problem, but you don't, you don't have a face to it. You don't have a yeah. anything to it, but a, just a, a loss when you're like, well, you got to kind of start from scratch where I think I'm used to having at least some kind of leads on hey, this person is six foot and they ran out the store and this is what they did. Or this person is doing these kind of behaviors online with transactions that their associate number is associated with X. Like those kind of things kind of give you a lead where I think sometimes you get brought right into just a lost situation and you have to reverse engineer it with data Mm, and mm -hmm. understand it a little bit. Figure out what is their motivation? What are they doing? Yeah, Yeah, totally. And I think the brazen behavior of some of the activity online is surprising too. Some of these guys are just, they're, they're nonstop. They will do it all day, every day, even with the clients. And they, they would just keep pounding away at the wall, hoping that it's eventually going to create a crack. And I think that that has been kind of surprising at times and just kind of seeing that, Hey, these guys are just, they're not going to stop. And I think you, you brought up like the zombie apocalypse and things like that, but uh-huh. it really is true though. I mean, they just continue to just keep coming. And if it goes through, it goes through for them. So When you look at the life cycle of fraud, I think that I learned a lot where three to five years, the last three to five years, probably account lookup was like a big to do. It was out there. It was like people were being exposed in kind of like some of those areas of breaches that happened across like the industry where their their PII information is out there. So account lookup became a really big vulnerability, I think, for a lot of people. And then you start to see, and we know it by the behaviors, right? Because some of these people will call in and they, they know your home address. They know where you previously worked. And you're like, how did people get this information? It's clearly from some kind of breach of some sort, right? Yeah. So so we knew that. And I learned a lot about that when I first came on this account lookup was like this big thing. And we were on the downslide of that where we've put a lot of mitigation things in place mm-hmm. to prevent that. 
but it started moving. It started uh, changing to this abuse category, reselling category, gift cards, scams, washing, loyalty gaming. And like, there's so many of these other variables that I think just surfaced over the last couple of years. And that people are kind of uh, making their ground in that as far as like their little business operations. I have a pretty strong theory that a lot of that is Gen Z coming up. They're gaming the system. It's the promo code abuse. It's the the gift card. Gift with purchase abuse. Yeah, the gift with purchase abuse. The, you know, just the scamming of everything. And maybe isolated one incident doesn't have a big impact on the bottom line, but they post about it on their social media. They post about it on YouTube, on anywhere. And now you've got everybody going, oh, okay, so I can buy six of these and get one for free and then return the six and still keep that one for free. Or I can do all these little scams that add up to a lot. And there's just. That's the brazen activity I'm talking about. Like they just, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they're not shy about it. Well, you know, no, it's not they don't like they're doing anything wrong. Right. They, they, they think they're entitled to this yes, kind of extra well, gaming yeah. dollars that they're making. So I think inevitably companies will eventually shift to saying, Hey, the profit side of some of these abuse categories or gaming categories have now fallen upside down on the profitability line that we probably need to address it. So mm-hmm. I think putting some things in place tactically, strategically um, now will help prevent it from bleeding out for companies. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important to you know look at really like revenue protection versus just fraud prevention. And I've said this before, and I've heard from a few departments that are working on changing their name because of it. So that makes me proud, but really looking at every area of vulnerability or that can be exploited and figure out, well, how are they doing that? And then it's not about not, not giving that gift with purchase because obviously that drives a lot of sales, but what things can we put on the back end to look for the people that are intentionally exploiting this, that kind of thing. You need smart people to really put together a full business process for this, <laughs> where you're looking at every part of it. So even yep. if you're taking a loss on the abuse side, does the operational resources get factored in there? How much you're paying the associates that are touching this product to how much sales you're getting in return and really look at the, the net result of that and say, are we underwater or are we still in a good way? And if you're in a good way, then that's fine. Yeah, Are there yeah. any you're little still having more sales than surgical that, okay. things you can do to make it more effective? Yeah. Um, but if you're upside down, then it's time, time to game it. plan. When yep. It's time to you know make a move. Yep. Do that root cause analysis, figure out what's wrong, and then figure out how to fix it. We just boiled down our jobs in such simplicity. <laughs> I feel like I always circle back to those main things, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Just... Yeah, you're right. Those are really the core pillars. And I I couldn't agree more. I think that's great. And I think it's really good when people have those core pillars within their career because they always go back to, they can put everything in a bucket and and take that with them right like you said if you were to go to a different organization or different within your company or go to a different company or whatever that is obviously a long time away we don't want to give your vp a heart attack i uh, <laughs> i know him as well and i don't want to be on his bad side we don't want to say that but i'm just like in general right theoretically for anyone leaving that that those are transferable and you can take those with you in in other roles So um, closing out, I think that one of the really cool things about learning from you and having you on the podcast was that you've looked at a career shift. You made a career shift and a change in industries. I mean, it was congruent, but there are a lot of people in physical loss prevention that wouldn't necessarily see 
a direct line to online fraud prevention. And they would get intimidated by technology or whatever that is. It's just, it's unknown. What advice do you have? And I know that there are people within the online fraud community. Most of us don't leave online fraud, but maybe we go to product or maybe we go branch out a little bit more, go from e-commerce to fintech, which is a totally different world or vice versa or whatever it is. What advice do you have for people who may be thinking about that? Probably my favorite question so far, only because it, it's, it resonates with me personally. And I've been there. I've been there where, I, hey, I only know what I know, right? Yeah. And I've been Sometimes in asset protection, loss enough. prevention, investigation. Like, can I do something? I mean, does this yeah. translate to anything? I mean, there's no like college degree for asset protection. There's no, am I stuck in this? And, and the answer is no, it's not. And I mentioned some of those key pillars. And I, I use this analogy that if you're an Eagle Scout, right? you're an Eagle Scout. So it doesn't matter what side of the mountain you're on. You're going to, you're an Eagle Scout. You're going to do just fine. You might have different things to learn or different hurdles to come across on, on different parts, but, but you can always find a way like, because all of those things are transferable in your leadership. So I think that it depends on one, can you learn quickly? Can you adapt to a whole bunch of nuances of new, right. And acronyms and vernaculars and process mm-hmm. flows and that takes dedication. I'm not going to lie to anyone on the call, on the podcast that yeah. it doesn't, it takes time. I mean, fraud, it took me a while. It took me quite a bit of calls to different people to really just make it under work in my brain as far as process. Oh, yeah. But once you get it and you understand the flow, now you can start implementing your own kind of experience sets into what things look like. And it doesn't, doesn't change from discipline to discipline. So I feel like if I took my experience set and I went to operations or I went to product or I went to anything else, I would do one and the same. I'd still be doing root cause analysis. I'd still be leveraging data to guide me on a roadmap. I'd still be collaborating with people and I'd probably still work on my communications or deliveries in the same way I do today. It's just a matter of, I had a pretty good transition of understanding asset protection and fraud and how they work together. So if you have a niche yeah. out there that you think the two things have some correlation to them, you can essentially be a translator, very similar to what I'm doing mm-hmm. right now, which is getting the two teams together and having them work together in a cohesive, synced way that helps the company. And you can do that with almost anything. And mm-hmm. it, I think that when you deal with the ebbs and flow of retail, you have to be flexible and you, ha- you can't play with scared chips. You have to you know, bet on yourself. And you have to know that, hey, I can do anything, right? And if they put me in a different role today and there's an opportunity, I know that I'm going to crush it. And you can go ahead and do that by just, like I said, prepping yourself, educating yourself. You mentioned I'm, I'm taking this my CFE right now. Yeah. And I, I say that by lead by example, where I'm not just in it to just kind of breeze by. I want to learn it. I'm grounded in it. I want to learn the best way I can. And it th- th- you don't have to get an education as far as certification or college right. or any of that. Mm-hmm. You can learn in a ton of different ways. It could be as simple as YouTube. It could be this podcast we're on. It could be researching different groups out there and what they're doing or getting associated with those groups. A ton of different ways to get familiar with a different vertical. And then from there, take your leadership and experience with you and show them what you got. Mm. Very well said. I think that's great, especially with the great resignation or reshuffle or whatever people are talking about. It's easy for us to think, well, gosh, I don't know that thing, but you take your experiences with you and having that genuine curiosity. I think a lot of people want to want to answer questions, right? I know you talked to several other retailers that have been in fraud prevention for a long time when you 
entered in and, and we're just like, what do you, and, and you got the hang of it. And I know that nobody felt bothered by that. They wanted to help. So you help them too. It, it's yeah, it's all, it always comes out in the wash as they say. Okay. Last question. And this is often people's favorite frauds, fraudology listeners love to hear war stories from fraud fighters. What is one of your most memorable cases, either when you were in physical LP with a previous company, with your current company, or now that you're on the e-commerce side. And there's probably a lot. (laughs) There there are tons. Um, I mean, just from an asset protection, I can talk about for days. But I'll try, I'll try and keep it fraud driven right now, just for the the nature of the call and the podcast. So I did, I talked to a few folks about some of the most recent ones that we had here. There is one in particular that sticks out with me and from, from one of my gals carrying my team, she, she told me about this one and I'll give you two of them. So here's one of them. The first one is there was an account lookup situation where they couldn't figure out like where it was stemming from. They kept mm. getting an account lookup kind of fraud coming through and they come to find out after further Usually investigating. Usually on the phone or, or through the website. It was it was on the phone, but okay. the root cause of it, like we're trying to figure out how is this person getting this information? It wasn't yeah. a typical kind of way. And we, we found them in store and this person would do an account lookup where they would just put in random numbers and they had a photographic memory. Oh, wow. And they were able to see <laughs> the POS screen and memorize all the information on it. And then would go back and then call the call center with all that information and, and do the account lookup fraud. And I thought that was like, I said, that's from like straight CSI. Like yeah. I've, I've never seen it. <laughs> and it's this kind of stuff happens out there. I mean, there are people that can they use their skills to their benefit. Yeah. Just... And here, here's the crazy part. When they finally put it together, it was a very large case. They put it together. She was also an informant for an agency. So it, mm-hmm. it just, it keeps, it the rabbit hole just keeps, you know, yep. falling, right? And yep. And I, I said, you know, those are one of those ones you got to make a documentary on one day, but it's out there. It's, it's, re- it's prevalent in, in society and hmm. just how people do use our talents. And I can imagine when you guys were looking at all that, you were like, hmm, they're going to similar stores and locations. Like, so maybe our stores have something to do with their, them knowing this person has an account with us and then drilling down more and going down through the rabbit hole and really figuring that out. That's. It's, all, it's also a great example of as far as the lines go from a fraud perspective, right? Like most of them don't have access to video cameras in the stores and investigative kind of workups you can mm. do in the store side, right? So they will only see what's in the data set yes. on paper. So to them, it'll be an enigma forever, right? On how this person is doing mm. it. But in, co- in collaboration with the investigation team and looking at it in store, they're able to see what really took place in person which is how some of this stuff came to light, right? So That's great exactly example. what we've been talking about through, you know, both episodes. Yeah, great stuff. And huh. then I do have one other yeah. one, which is a, a pretty big one that came together. And this had a lot of moving parts to it, but I thought it was also very interesting, was dark web stuff. You know, people do that all the time, right? They get mm-hmm. information on the dark web. And then they call the call center, right? They, they get increase in their buy and, and things like that. We see that often as well. And then setting up orders that are then picked up by what we call runners and mules mm. that come into the store, right? So they're not associated with the actual bad guy. They're being you know, paid or compensated in different ways. And then they come pick up the order. And then they use Instagram models and influencers to come conduct the returns because the <laughs> folks that are doing the returns 
might find it hard to resist some of these people coming in with these particular things. It's no longer the social engineering experiment within itself, right? Wow. These people come in and distract. It's a whole distraction. Is it because they're beautiful or because they're well-known and they're influencers? I think probably a little bit of everything, probably the way they talk and just Mm -hmm. their demeanor is probably just super, yeah, just probably good at the gab and things like that. Which, which led to gift cards and, and returns and things like that, right? Selling on the marketplaces. So I thought it's important to take away from this one is hmm. the amount of collaboration that went in to reverse engineer this. Oh, was like wow, step yeah. at a time, step at a time, step at a time. And, and to the point we just made, the fraud aspect of it, collaborating with the field aspect of it, to understand the methodology side of it, to bring it at home, then bring it in law enforcement and their teams to eventually bring it to fruition hmm. is just... Uh, just a big feather in the cap of what we can do as a team when we collaborate all together with information and data and you get fun stories out of it by the yes, you do. You know, tail end of it. So <laughs> I usually say I can either be a buzzkill or really entertaining at dinner parties. Not that I've been to any dinner parties recently, but with, yeah, with people yeah. outside of the industry, right? Like don't get me talking about, yeah, uh, lots of stuff that it can be a buzzkill, but I can also tell funny stories too with famous people or whatever the yeah, you yeah. know the thing is, the crazy stories we get. And that's why I think they're fun is that they're, they help us learn through example. And I also have to say not only the collaboration to figure it out, but the collaboration that it took on the bad actor side to put that all together, the collaboration and innovation on their side that is why collaboration on this side is so critical because they're doing it too. That's the only way sure. we'll keep up. So very fascinating that they're committing. It, it, it's a few different parts, right. Or a few different steps for them, but that they've, they've thought about it. They've planned yeah, it out. Yeah. They, so know. did you figure out if the Instagram models and influencers knew that they were, were they witting or unwitting or do you know? They, they were all brought in. So at the, at the end, they're in collusion, you know, okay. in, this, in the process. So, they're not just like outside, like they're they're affiliated with this whole thing, including like those mules and runners that do it too. They're yeah. acting in concert with these kind of mm. things. So they're going to be brought in as well. Charges might be different for those type of people, but. Right, right. Um, well, but they all benefited. Way, it's a major operation. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Kind of reminds me of the federal law enforcement case. I was asked to be a witness an expert witness for several years ago. And I plan on doing at least one podcast episode about it because actually the guy who I testified against just got out of prison a few months ago, but, and I've seen him do some interviews and I'm like, well, that would be an interesting one, but he was a rapper, um, fairly well-known, especially in his community and area and industry. And he had a carding ring, a counterfeit carding ring. And the prosecution Mm. actually like did a, almost like a is that called a not a gunshot, but like a what's that called? The analysis where they put, oh my gosh, now I'm losing my mind. But you know, where they where they showed all the places that the cards were used and they were used more significantly and concentrated in around his home and then spread out. And then you could see the exact route to Las Vegas that he would take by where the car or uh-huh. mules yeah. would take, right? Yeah. But everybody was it was this massive operation of counterfeiting cards eight or nine years ago that they they cracked down on and it made quite, there were a lot of people involved, but at that point they only brought him in because he was the kingpin and, and all of that. They just would have been too many smaller 
pieces. Usually they work their way up, right? And they have people flip on eventually getting to the kingpin. Yes, yes, they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an interesting case to just even be aside, just have a a supporting role, so to speak. And there's definitely some articles about it and other things. So anyway, but not to make it about me at all. It just, it reminds me of that where there's just, there really are so many moving pieces and that makes yeah. it more challenging for us. And so important to work with multiple groups within the company to get the right data and Hey, do you know what they're doing? <laughs> you know, that kind right. of thing, but also important to, but also so fun, right? It, they relate oh, stories and yes, yes. It's, it, it's the best job to me to, especially for those of us that, that love mystery TV shows and things like that and trying to solve it before the, the show is over. It's the best way. I mean, I like having a computer between me and bad actors. I don't like the face to face that freaks <laughs> me out, but, and I'm sure your wife in some level is happy that you're now behind a computer screen and, and not on the front lines, I would imagine. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. She's probably very happy about that, but we'll definitely have to have you come back and just do all stories. Cause that would be fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate you having me. I'd love to come back. Oh my gosh. Thank you. This conversation went a lot longer than we had planned, but we oh, also kind of had a feeling that would happen, but Gary, I just really appreciate your time and sharing your experiences. And with your permission, I will place your LinkedIn profile in the show notes for both episodes. So people can reach out to you. I mean, understand that Gary did say that he has to prioritize who we can respond to. So not all sales calls will be, or sales emails will be responded to, but um, especially for other merchant collaboration and and other people that, you know, want to learn from you on, on either side of the fence. I think you're just such a great asset and I'm really grateful to get to learn from you and, and have you on the show. So thanks again. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.